you know, that was the dream. I thought, wow, imagine if I could ride FEI. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Riders Circle podcast. I'm your host, Alicia Targa, and today we have a very special guest joining us. Get ready to saddle up and delve into the world of dressage as I introduce you to Ali O'Neill, a true equestrian powerhouse. Now, Ali is not your average rider, ladies and gentlemen, with a remarkable track record as a national A-level Grand Prix dressage judge a dressage coach and an FEI rider, she has conquered the equestrian scene at the highest level. Beyond her accolades, Ali is a self-proclaimed nerd and forever a student of the sport. She's constantly driven to bridge the gap between theory and practice in the world of dressage and today she's here to share her wealth of knowledge and insights with all of us. So whether you're a seasoned equestrian or a curious listener who's always been intrigued by the art of dressage, this episode is for you. Ali's expertise and dedication to the sport will leave you inspired and eager to take your riding skills to the next level. So grab your riding boots, tighten those girths, and let's dive right in. Ali. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you here and learn from your expertise. Thanks for inviting me. I'm actually really excited to be chatting too. This is really cool. I know. You um, joined me on my little Target Talk segment back in COVID and we had a great chat then. And so I'm excited that um, and very grateful that you said yes again to chatting to me again. Mm-hmm. No, the COVID chat was fun. So, no, looking forward to doing it again. So let's go right back to the start. And I want to go back to young Ali. You know, where what inspired you to start riding horses and being involved with horses? And tell me a bit how that has impacted your life so far. I feel like probably my experience with getting involved with horses has probably shaped me as a human just generally because I was not from a horsey family whatsoever. So I was just obsessed with horses as an animal. I was like, oh, my God. And I was that kid that had such an extraordinary imagination that if we would pass a horse float while we were driving to Nan and Pops, I would be like, I wonder if Pop has sent this horse for me because he said he'd buy me a pony so I was just so obsessed with the idea of getting a horse any horse I didn't care what it was if there was a horse that could be padded I would beg for my parents to like stop on the side of the road and I would just stand and pat them for hours I'd be that kid that would pick grass for the horse if it was like a three kilometer walk on a weekend I would walk and see that horse every day I didn't care I was just obsessed and I wanted to be near them and yeah, it's just something that I can't really explain. And I think because my parents were a bit like, you know, we're not going to get her a horse. We don't know anything about horses. I kind of found my own way of getting one um, on my own. And I think my first horse I got when I was 11 and it was a foal. So, <laughs> no, no, Start him young. <laughs> How did that even happen? It wasn't even broken in. So. <laughs> Yeah. So then you got this foal 
And then yeah. where where did you go from there? How did Ali find dressage? Well, I did the pony club thing and I actually broke that foal in because I read a book. I was like, right, I know how to do this. I know to do all of the things and these are the steps. So after school, when the foal was a three-year-old, I guess I um, put some time into it. And because I was quite tall, um, I outgrew the foal pretty quickly. So it was a really super sort of little all-rounder pony club horse. And I think I paid maybe 150 bucks for it when it was a foal. And then I sold it for like $1,500 when I was 15. So that was like huge money back then when I was young. I was like, wow, I can buy all sorts of stuff with this money. Like I'm self-sufficient. And so I bought myself, well, I actually got myself an off-the-track thoroughbred like most teenagers do because I was really, I guess, um, interested in showing not so much dressage back then because we didn't really have like a lot of dressage coaches local in the area. Like we had flat lessons at Pony Club and, you know, I used to sort of do a little bit of everything, but I remember after spending some time, you know, all through my teenage years dabbling in a little bit of everything, but specializing in nothing, um, that I was at the show horse nationals one year and it was kind of like, um, you know, the pinnacle of show horses. And, and that was what I was familiar with. And I had some off the track thoroughbreds and I'd brought them along and trained them and competed them. And then this one year, when I was watching at Show Horse Nationals, they brought out a horse to do a demonstration in dressage in like the intermission of like on a Saturday night. And I just went, what the hell is that? I want to do that. Wow. And then all of the other show horses came in after and I was just immediately bored and disinterested. Like it was like, it never came back. Like it, it died and it never came back. So yeah. I was like, right, all I need a dressage coach. I need to find one and I'm, I want to learn this stuff. So that's kind of how it started. I, um, my poor thoroughbreds, I was like, why won't it be through and more stuff will through the back. Like, how can I get it to, how can I get it to be a bit more on the bit? And I'm not allowed to use my reins anymore. And you know, gone are the just hold its head still in the show ring and That's right. actually have to use your legs and seat. And <laughs> yeah, it was, I realized I couldn't sit to the trot at all. And, you know, I'd won all of these show rider championships that I was immensely proud of. And I thought it was fabulous. And then I'm like, oh my God, I can't even really sit to the trot if it's back's moving, can I? Wow. So it was like a real challenge and it was so foreign to me. I thought I knew everything and I knew nothing. And you know, to this day, nothing's changed. So <laughs> I feel like I went through a similar transition when I went from eventing to working in a dressage stable. And my poor eventers, when I went home, I was like, right, you will bend here and you will do this. And you went to do that. And they just went, go away. I don't, I don't do to. that. No, it's not how we yeah. do it here. No. So I think I went through a similar like frustration phase of, you know, having all that you knew to what you now want to know and what the horses are like. That's completely different to what I'm used to. So, Mm -hmm. um, yes. And then you found a little horse with a big heart called Prince Noir. Tell me about how you came to find him. You know, it's really interesting because Prince Noir, I 
first saw him not long after he very first arrived into the country where he was, I think, you know, with a, a few different riders um, that competed him at FEI. And I remember looking at him and going, oh, my God, like, how do these animals exist? How, how do you get one of them with no money like me? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, fast forward, literally, I'm pretty sure it was about 10 years. Um, I was adjusting my off-the-track thoroughbred, and I think I'd bought my very first warm blood foal, so I had a warm blood growing up, you know, on the property as well, waiting for it to grow up so I could have my very first warm blood. And in that Future time, planning. I was, yeah, and that was kind of what I could afford at the time. So I was like, I'll buy a foal and, you know, ride as much as I can and learn as much as I can until that one's ready to ride. And um, so at the adjustment where I had my horses, Prince Noir was actually standing at stud there. So that was his home. And at that time, I think he was 17 turning 18. And there was not a lot of interest from anyone in him, I guess, as a riding horse at that time. I think it was maybe thought that he was a bit of a has-been and, you know, his scores kind of got worse and worse and worse over time. Um, I think that's just, you know, sometimes a sign of when a horse has, you know, a lot of different riders and they all have a different style. And, um, you know, I know that he, being a stallion, maybe had some challenges with focus and concentration and, and whatever. But, you know, by the time that I met him and came across him, he was sort of just sitting around doing nothing. And one year at Christmas, because I was riding all of the um, young warm bloods by him that were, you know, green and I was the one that was kind of gutsy that would, you know, get them going a little bit so that they could walk, trot and canter and, um, you know, in a, in a nice soft sort of supple frame and they were, they were rideable. I mentioned to his owner, I said, oh, just joking, you know, I was thinking about what you could get me for Christmas, Barb. And she said, oh, 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 what? And I said, a ride on the stallion to do it. And she said, oh, you can, you can have a sit on the stallion. Of course you can. Um, so I was a bit like, oh, my God, I was saying it just as a joke. Yeah. And um, I couldn't believe that I was sort of allowed to have a sit on him. And my coach at the time said, oh, fantastic. You know, he's um, a really tricky horse, that one. And I said, oh, really? Like, like how? She goes, oh, you'll see. You'll see. And anyway, of course, I couldn't see anything because I had no idea what. Rose-coloured glasses on too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he, um, I had my first little ride and then I asked if I could look after him and keep him in work because I, you know, really enjoy the experience and off we went. It's that's how it started. And where did he take you? There was tails and top hats? It was. And I think, um, Probably in the beginning, my idea of what I wanted to learn and experience with him was very particular. Um, I sort of felt like I had no business going straight out FEI, if that makes any kind of sense. It was a yeah. bit like, well, this horse has been FEI and, you know, do you want to really learn to ride and, and learn this properly or do you just want to go and bash it around some tests just to say yeah. you rode FEI? And I was like, Mm-mm, not for me. That's not my story. I really want to take this opportunity and see if I can learn to do this the right way. And so the first thing I did was um, get some help from an amazing man called Richard Weiss or Richard Weiss, as he's known, uh, who is a posture and position specialist. So I thought, 
This is the bounciest horse I've ever sat on. If I want to learn to ride this horse, I'm going to have to learn properly. So yeah. I had him help me um, when he was coming to the adjustment. And then I also started training uh, with and met a German barata called Adam Reese, who really took me back to basics and taught me how to ride, I guess, according to the training scale and with all of the correct things in mind, so no shortcuts. And interestingly, that way really resonated with the horse and he literally, like, became more youthful in front of my very eyes just from focusing on the basics and being really disciplined. And, of course, when you've got a German Breiter um, on your tail and being really strict with what he was teaching me as well it, it came together really quickly and so I had no expectations of kind of competing him FEI but I, I definitely dreamt it I was you know that was the dream I thought wow imagine if I could ride FEI and and I did so yeah um and you know and he was 20 years old and getting some of the best scores of his whole life so um it was it was really inspiring for me to see that work kind of um, so beneficial to an older horse, like just yeah. good basic training and how you yeah. can literally breathe life back into them when they're using their bodies correctly. Yeah, well, I think um, going back to, you know, the basics, I think people go out there and see horses doing the tricks and want to do the tricks and they try and skip a few levels to try and get the tricks. But the mm. tricks, you know, unless you've got those basics – the tricks aren't going to look any good. And I think there's an important lesson there I find particularly with my coaching is that, you know, 80% of the riding that I do is just the basics and only 20% is actually executing the tricks. And I think for riders, you know, we, we look at the tricks and we see how, you know, and we try and skip. We're like, right, we, you know, we can half do a shoulder in, we'll go to elementary, but you know, you haven't got that <laughs> suppleness and you haven't got that elasticity. And I know not all horses have all that all the time. And that's, you know, where they might go out and, you know, be able to put a, a you know, they can only, the horse has got a limited, you know, ability and okay, if they're not going to be, all fantastic in the basics you might go out there and do the best you can with what you've got but doing Mm. you know that as you said with the older horses particularly you know once they learn if you're lucky enough if you've got a horse that's learnt up to FEI lesson level you're only at that stage keeping them fit and keeping them supple and maintaining their fitness. So I think there's that what's important, what you said there about going back to the basics and getting, you know, this older, probably rigid horse back loose and supple again. And Mm. I think when I know young riders and amateur riders, you know, they want a horse that's been there, done that. So they might be in that same position you were where they're buying an older horse that knows the tricks, but needs to then go back themselves to do the basics all over again. Exactly. And good basics are actually quite challenging and really give you a much greater understanding and depth of feel and, better timing, technique. There's 
a never ending platform of being able to improve like, you know, those little one percenters and it really helps you understand more about how you can influence the horse in a positive way all the way along. Like there's always, um, you know, room for improvement no matter what level. When I first met you, actually, it was when you came to buy a foal from one of my clients and then (laughs) you actually came back and bought another one. And so tell me, like, obviously you had this, you know, urge to start horses from a young horse buying a foal as your first ever horse. But tell me what, what kept you wanting to, you know, breed your own horses and, you know, develop them from the get go through. Well, as it turns out, I have very expensive taste so, <laughs> and um, very little disposable income to keep sort of shelling out if things go wrong. So for me, probably the best investment of my money was to buy horses with breeding that I really believed in um, and that I was really attracted to and the qualities that I really liked and choose them from the beginning so that I could kind of shape them a little bit as an individual, really know, you know, everything from the beginning and make sure that they had a really good introduction at that really important sort of growth growth stage. Because everyone's idea of, you know, what is the, the best type of upbringing, especially for a young warm blood is different. Um, I know that as time's gone by, there's things that I just didn't know previously and that as time goes on, I'm learning more and more and more and I just keep trying to do things as best as I know as I'm going, like diet-related, feet-related, in utero-related, all of these things. You're like, how can I bring this foal into the world that gives me the best chance of having a sound athlete for a long period of time? Because – Let's face it, they break. And when they break, they break a lot and they break often and they break all the time. Like things go wrong. It, it doesn't even have to be that, you know, they break and they can't be ridden again. Just sometimes it's an accident or a whoopsie or in the paddock or you don't know. It's that, that question mark. We don't yeah. know what happened. It's just, yes. it's just yep. not I've a riding horse anymore. Yep. And, yep. and, you know, it's kind of like I've had so many um, – horses that haven't worked out but I haven't invested such a large sum that I could never replace them so this was probably the best way financially for me but also with the most amount of insight so that I could find myself a horse that I knew was going to be um, something that you like a a great match yeah Yeah, you know good match for me so I've kind of gone you definitely wouldn't do that one again or yeah, that's really interesting. That one kind of works. And yeah, this one needs this. And yeah, just sort of getting to know them all as an individual and knowing them from when they're a little kid's really nice. So yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you think is like one of the most important lessons so far that you've learned from breeding horses? Uh, you definitely need to breed for rideability and trainability. My attitude towards what I would like as a young horse now compared to, you know, maybe 15 years ago, are two very different types of horses. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, definitely that, that ride, if, if it does not matter if it walk, trot and canters for nines and tens, 
if it does not have a willing and trainable character, I'm not interested. Yeah. And I it think that you down. Yeah. And it doesn't and it doesn't want to. If there's no desire, you're limited with what you can do with that horse. And yeah. That's re- that's actually when that whole mental mind game comes in because it can be really challenging mentally to work with horses like that because you can sometimes get that false sense of security and it can be, you know, really unreliable and it's disheartening and you just think, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm like, no, this needs to be fun. And you want to be working yeah, with horses that also want to work. You're like, that they find it fun too. You're like, I really like talking to you. And they're like, me too. Instead of, yeah. I don't want to have any kind of conversation with you because I don't even want to be here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I always love the horse that wants to work and meets you at the gate or even the horse yeah. that as you walk past their paddock, they look at you like, why are you walking past my paddock and not to me? You know, I that... would really like to come in, yeah. please. Could you pick me next? <laughs> that's right. Yes, absolutely. And I think, again, that's a, 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 you know, a lesson for our listeners in that you know, we see all these big fancy horses and the Europeans and at the, you know, state championships and the national championships. And we're like, yes, we want to ride a horse like that. But you don't see the, what goes on at home or what the horse is like in the stable or what the horses, you know, there's, I, I call it like a minuscule 10% of people that would probably be able to ride a horse like that. Because you know the what? riders that are riding those horses are freaks. <laughs> and I actually don't think that, like, I don't know about you, I'm sure you've come across horses like this, you know, while riding professionally as well. Those horses that we would go foah about, when you actually get to sit on those horses that are incredible movers, like big, bold, loose, ground covering, and just like, huge you go this is a lot to contain and while I'm really enjoying flying around the arena because it feels uphill and its knees are around its chin naturally if I wanted to use a corner in the future and prepare for a pretty steep half pass that's a lot of weight that's got to come back onto those hind legs to sit and carry and and hold all of that balance so sometimes I think bigger is not always better no, absolutely. And that's probably, you know, in turn, like I, I love a loose, elastic moving horse with a good natural rhythm. I really enjoy seeing it. But the thing that I've observed with young horses, especially at the beginning of their careers, is that at prelim and novice, they are capable of getting, you know, mid to high 70s because you go, wow, you're showing all of the things required for that level. But when they move into elementary and the word collected creeps in, and then all of a sudden you have to collect that canter in preparation for the simple chain tree walk. That's when it all starts to sort of, you know, it becomes more difficult for those really big, yeah. loose moving horses. And you go, hey, I, I wish you well with collecting that. Yes. <laughs> but not for me. Yes. No, thank you. Yes. Well, I, I, I have one of those in my stable and, you know, he does an extended canter for an eight and a half, but trying to teach it to do a canter pirouette, I think mm-hmm. I might be here for a few years. <laughs> uh, but but when you can, it's worth it because then you can get the 8s and the 8.5s across the board. It just takes yeah. time. It does. It does. And I'm a huge believer of 
you know, everything happens for a reason. And sometimes, especially with horses, we have setbacks and things go wrong. And so I would like to tell, well, I would like you to tell me actually um, about the fall that changed it all for you. Mm. So this fall kind of wasn't supposed to happen. And, you know, you stack, you, you fall off now and then. Sometimes you don't, but I, I'm usually pretty good at sticking some gnarly stuff. Um, but I also like to think that I can avoid things and read things, you know, and sort of keep myself safe. But in this particular fall, I wasn't supposed to be on this horse. I don't know why I decided that this was the day that I was going to sit on this horse. And it was its first sit for a little while. Um, and I had my helper with me, uh, we'll call it supervising. And I just hopped on and I was due to pick up my three-and-a-half-year-old from the trainers that day and have my very first sit on her only a couple of hours later. And while I was walking around, I said to my helper, don't worry, I won't trot. (laughs) Famous last words. Anyway, I started trotting because that's what, you know, you do when you're a little bit silly. And um, tick, tick, boom, I was on the floor. And as soon as I hit the ground, I went, oh, I'm pretty broken. That's not that's not ideal. So I broke my collarbone and I had to go to hospital. I started the process of healing and then only for it to displace and I needed surgery. So out. It did hurt. It hurt a lot actually. Don't recommend breaking your collarbone. What's a no, good I heard, word, but Yes, I've heard it's it's pretty painful, just like ribs. Not, I haven't not, done ribs. Yeah, I'd like to keep it that way, but yes. you know, the collarbone, don't recommend. Um, so during that time, my mare that I got a beautiful filly out of didn't actually go in foal the next time that I tried to breed from her. And she was not very old and she's kind of was um, elementary medium before I decided um, to put her in foal. And so I brought her back into work. So she was stabled and under lights and I was like, well, you know, I'll take my time bringing her back into work and, you know, I'm sure that she'll uh, have a lot to teach someone else and I can get her to a, another rider and I'll put her on the market and, um, Because she was, I guess, going to be doing nothing for sort of three or four months, I decided I would just try one more time, given that she'd been under the, you know, under lights and she was cycling and all of that, healthy and looking well. And I said, look, I've got enough time to try the the three doses of the semen that I've bought and we'll see what happens by the time we, you know, confirm that it wasn't just one season and we can't get her in foal. And that's just how it is. We got one beautiful filly out of her. I'll just try once because, you know, what else am I going to do? She's sitting in the paddock anyway. Let's just try. And she went in foal first go. (laughs) Beautiful. Just like we like them. Doesn't happen all the time. I went, went, right, right. And I kind of like looked at the screen when we were scanning her and I went, is that, is it real? And there was this sort of vet was nodding, going, "Yeah, she's she's pregnant." I'm like, "But, but oh, what? Like, first go? What do you mean?" <laughs> so that again. was a little bit unexpected. I was like, oh, "Whoa, 
okay. And I'd planned to breed an, my other mare and do an embryo transfer from her so that there would be two foals coming and I would keep one and sell one. And the other foal didn't arrive because we didn't get a pregnancy from that one. And I was so sure that, you know, the maiden mare would go in foal super easy and we were having all sorts of problems getting her to, you know, ovulate on the right day. And, oh, it was just, it was just really challenging. I was like, oh, this isn't happening. And then I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and went, I think I'll just keep keep the one out of the yeah keep the one that we got easily and it's so funny because when we thought about you know having two foals due the other foal that I had planned that hasn't eventuated was like a totalist foal so I was like wow that foal would be the holy grail of anything I could ever afford that'd be like an amazing foal and I joked and said what if the other fold was like better than the totalist and I, and I had sold it. Imagine what would happen. And anyway, I didn't even have to make that decision because as soon as we just had one pregnancy, I went, Oh, well, the decision's been made for me. And um, so, yeah, that was really interesting. I wasn't expecting that. And you know, the decision to be made for me and yeah, just had to kind of go with the flow. I was like, okay, universe. (laughs) yes yeah and you had um started judging before your fall am I correct I hadn't actually started the upgrade process I um because I actually started the upgrade process at nationals where I was supposed to be riding but couldn't because I was broken so yeah I took the opportunity to start with my upgrade to A-level, which is the Grand Prix. Yeah, and now you're a A-level National Grand Prix judge. Yeah, well, I passed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can judge the big stuff. That's exciting. It is pretty cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool. So what made you decide, you know, to do that? Because I find as riders we have this, you know, um, we want to be riding at all the competitions. We don't want to waste our time judging. Uh, so what, mm. what, you know, what motivated you to become a judge and how do you think being a rider to start with, you know, benefited you to then become a judge? Well, I think in my time with horses, the people who I've come across who I was always, who I always sort of held in high regard and had a lot of respect for and was always really in awe of happened to be coaches who were A-level judges who were also FEI riders. I was like, wow, you guys just like have ticked every box. because Triple threat. And you, yeah, and you know everything about everything. And I thought to myself, that's really inspirational and I would love to be like that one day. And I just never kind of thought to myself that I would be, and I still don't think that that's the case, but they just had so much knowledge, experience and wisdom to share. And I just loved listening to them because 
They used correct terminology in the correct moment that I saw things that I didn't even imagine existed. I was just like, how did they see that? Like, I don't even know where to look when they're saying that. Um, yeah. and how did they notice that? So I was just really in awe of it. And Adam, my coach, was also a, is also a judge. And at the time when I was competing FEI, he really encouraged me to use my scores at FEI to fast track. And I'd sort of been a HRCAV judge, you know, many, many years before, just because I was really interested in it. I knew that they needed more judges. Um, I was interested in learning more. So I'd sort of dabbled in it a little bit. Um, But fast tracking to D level, which is medium, that was a big jump. That was yeah. a, a lot to learn very quickly. And yeah. I went, whoa. Yeah. So very for, different from being a rider that's to right. actually actually having an eye that can notice things that are, I guess, in order of um, relativity. So, you know, what's the most important thing and all things according to the training scale and getting to a mark and how do we give the rider the right feedback and how do we say something that doesn't take us three sentences to get out like how can we be brief but not <laughs> yeah. too brief and what's the yeah. priority in the in the movement here and what did they execute well and what went wrong and so wow judging just opened my eyes and um gave me a different perspective because being a rider uh now is it's maybe not so enjoyable being a rider that's also a judge because Sometimes I can feel the score as it's happening and it's like, yeah, oh, it's a 6-5 at best. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, on the other side of the scale, thinking to yourself, oh, that's got to be an 8. That felt brilliant. Um, so sometimes it's the judge's voice in my head when I'm riding that I'd love to just turn off and just ride. So, yeah, yeah it has its benefits, but it also it can be, it can be a blessing but a curse. Yeah. So what do you, what, like, what do you think people and riders, what's the biggest misconception do you think people have about riding a a good dressage test? That 70% is an easy score to get. (laughs) Don't we know it? I love being in the 70% club once a year. (laughs) Oh, it's, it's actually um, really challenging to get a mistake free consistent test that flows from the second that you get in that gate to your final halt and that's really what all sevens are but that's actually how challenging the sport is being able to perform a sequence of movements one after the other after the other mistake free and flowing is really challenging yeah I always say prelims the hardest level because do you know how hard it is to ride one whole 20 meter circle without an interruption of balance oh totally like but it's so much circle for something to go wrong (laughs) totally so um I guess in the last few years we have seen a lot of good quality horses coming through and I I remember it was only five years ago where there was one Grand Prix horse that would get 70% we're like oh my gosh 
Whereas now we've got, you know, four or five, you know, Australian horses or six or seven. I'm not sure the exact number, but there's quite a few horses in Australia now that are consistently getting over to 70%. But what other trends are you seeing within the dressage competition rings? Well, there's one that I can talk about that I think I've noticed a little bit, which is at all levels and even up to Grand Prix, this little habit of flexing the horse to the outside, either through a corner or in a downward transition. It's really interesting. That's one trend. It's maybe not a good trend. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, something that, you know, you kind of think about the basics, going back to the basics no matter the level, that the horse yeah. has to be flexed, has to be flexed in the direction of travel. So if you're cantering and you're making a trot transition at M, as an example in the Grand Prix, and your head, your horse's head is flexed <laughs> clearly outwards to the left, you know, that's something to consider. Um, and something I've noticed and observed. Um, in terms of other trends, I can't really think of anything top of mind. Um just trying to think. I think. Can't think of anything. Have you got any, when, Have you got anything that you've noticed that I might that might sort of? No, I do mood? notice the outside flexion thing, and I think I know why people do it. <laughs> Tell me, but, you have to enlighten me because I, I guess because I've got a crazy strict coach that would be on me like a fly on poo if I did that. Um, it's it's yeah. I, I think always, it's a balancing. I need deflection. Yeah, I think it's a balance thing. Mm. I know. So I was actually riding a young horse the other day and he struggles from canter to trot. And mm. the way that I'm getting him to, to do it in balance is to lean in my outside stirrup. Mm. So to keep his weight into the outside hind leg to, you know, stop him falling on his face and running away. So I'm not saying that that's a relation to a Grand Prix horse coming around the corner but I think it might be a similar reasoning as to coming around the corner in the can and keeping them in the outside rein, weight down in the outside stirrup to get that trot so the inside shoulder stays more upright, ready for so the funny trot. funny you said that because do you know what I was about to say to you was, can I offer a titbit, which is, especially on your young horses, this is what I found works, hold a short crop. Yeah, and just lay it on their shoulder blade, so you can keep the flexion, but you just give them like a tiny little pat, pat, pat with the flap of the crop on the shoulder, and on the inside shoulder. Them. Yeah, so you go keep yourself up over, right? Yeah, the le- yeah, keep yourself up yep. over to into my outside the outside hand. shoulder. Yep. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so then it sort of supports your inside leg as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a fantastic little thing. I might have to try that cheap. myself. I'm a cheat. Yeah. I'm like, how do I make this easier for me? I'm like, oh, crap, might do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do I well, tell I... you? Keep that bit there. <laughs> well, yeah, so I don't know. That that could be my little guess as to why we might be seeing that. Mm. Um, uh, but, yes, I do see a bit of outside flexion going on, particularly in the higher levels. <laughs> <laughs> more yeah. so um a little yeah. bit of you know when you get to that level you know you do what you got to do to get around absolutely and totally. but maybe there's little bits of like cheating a... going on 
Or it's sometimes just like an, an unconscious thing. Like, yeah. don't you yeah. think that sometimes, and I know, I don't know about you, but I know it definitely happens to me. There will be times where my brain is saying one thing and I'll be like, oh my God, did my left hand just do that? And I'm like, why did it do that? And like my favorite thing that I've been doing lately and laughing about because I only notice it like the millisecond after it's happened is that my bum comes out of the saddle sometimes in a single fly oh, change. Like if I'm just I not giving it enough thought. I constantly remind myself to sit back. I keep your ass in a saddle, mm. Alison. Yeah, and I'm like, I can down. hear this like slap. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't even have a big booty and it's slapping. <laughs> no, I'm consistently being like, sit back, Alicia. Sit your bum in your the bum. saddle. Oh, no. Don't cross the inside rain over the wither. Oh, it's so embarrassing it. the words that go on in my head I'm saying to myself. <laughs> like, we don't need, no one needs to know about this dialogue. We'll keep that one internal. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so where do you see the sport heading in the next five to ten years? Like, where are we going to see the sport in Australia heading, you know, with all these, you know, technologies, with the, you know, new, like the amazing amount of imported horses and the European mm. breeding coming through and really, you know, saturating the market now. Like you'd hardly see a thoroughbred cross anywhere anymore, you know, where, mm. and the ability, you know, the riders, the young riders coming through on these, you know, brilliant horses and they're, you know, where do you see us in another 10 years? I think there's definitely some riders that are in a really fortunate position where they've been paired with some really good horses that are, I guess, suitable to be good schoolmasters for them. So they're definitely going to learn some skills that they can bring to other horses and I guess continue developing the quality and the standard here in Australia. Um, I think that what I wish for them as well is that they really um, embrace the learning of the theory side of the sport as well uh, because I think sometimes it's very easy just to ride <clears throat> and sometimes we do yeah. and the importance of why the basic exercises are important. So I, I wish that for the sport and for the riders coming through that they really learn the theory side of it and, you know, when they are asked the question, why do we use rhombare or, you know, explain the importance of shouldering or why is leg yield this or, you know, just, just little questions like that, that they're confident in being able to answer it because they know why they're doing what they're doing. So yeah, they're not I, just I riding that. Mm, yeah. yeah. They're not just like, Oh, you know, I've got this horse and I ride it. And you know, just because it's, it's just what happened and, it was just available. I'd love the horse because it was beautiful. And, yeah. you know, that, that, and, you know, I know that that's, there's some really hardworking young riders out there that are um, really engrossed in the sport. They've been riding their whole life and they've progressed, you know, through the levels and they've really done the work and they've, they've done their time and they, they are very passionate about improving themselves and their horse's welfare is really paramount and top of mind and they're really well cared for and they're managing the horse as an athlete and, you know, an individual. So it's really nice to sort of see all of that sort of stuff. But yeah. I think that we've definitely got a really good standard of riders in Australia. I know that a lot more of the riders at the higher levels are travelling for clinics and things like that as well, which is really good. They're happy to share their knowledge 
and guide some of the younger riders and you know the, the other riders as well the not the not young riders hmm. um but i think um in terms of what the sport will look like in 5 years i really hope that um the numbers sort of stay healthy in the classes i know that um especially at some of the bigger competitions like nationals and things like that it i've noticed that it maybe you know doesn't have the same prestige that it had maybe 5 to 10 years ago where it was like the best of the best of the best and you know even a 70% score wouldn't have you in the placings at nationals in the past it was you know a big classes full of incredible quality horses um i think the numbers are sort of starting to dwindle a little bit i've noticed locally and at some of the bigger competitions i think some of them um are definitely always going to be well supported because they are an incredible event to attend and i'm talking about willinga as an example so mm-hmm. um but you know it'd be nice to see the classes looking healthy um i do have some concerns about maybe the number of judges that are i guess going to be available in the sport yeah. in the future that's a, yeah. that's a that's a concern yeah and uh, i also hope internationally for dressage sport that we have judges that continue to put their neck on the line and you know are happy to continue doing so because at the moment they're a little bit well they're getting they're getting slammed at the moment and yeah i know that certainly the the way of social media and and we'll call it the general public's impression of dressage as a whole has maybe been tarnished a little bit by some really horrible situations and now i feel like it's a bit of a hyper focus that everything dressage is bad mm-hmm. and i know that especially for me personally i have not a lot of desire or interest to put myself out there as an international judge and continue my education i've definitely well i'll always continue my education i'll always be you know forever refreshing forever learning but um i've actually been asked if i would consider continuing on to the stars level and um you know consider becoming an international judge and i'm going to go back to riding i've decided i've hit my a ticket and i'm like now i'm i'm unplugging i think i think that's me done for the minute just at the moment yeah i think i'll just leave it be for a little bit and just see what happens because it's yeah i think at the moment well it'll be interesting i think I think it'll be interesting in the next 10 years how, mm. you know, judging progresses, if there will be some sort of influence of AI or computer, you know, systems looking at the way that horses are, you know, going. And I think, um, I'm not saying that that's something I want, but, you know, no, there's always just... going to be a human element involved in judging in that, yeah, of course. you know, and we are literally a sport where we pay people to judge us like, you know, Mm. and then complain about it. And, you know, particularly those high levels, it is, you know, easy for us to sit at home 
and say, you know, I would have done this or I would have done that or, I, you know, that horse isn't going this way or, you know, whatever. The only way that we can actually change that is to become judges ourselves or become, you know, I always say, have, before you complain, have you volunteered yet? You know, you know the only really way to... interesting, exactly what you just said then, which was someone sitting at the screen saying, I wouldn't have judged that like that and that horse is awful. That's actually an emotional response. And as a judge, there is no emotion in judging. You don't actually get to have that response. That's no. not a way that you can come up with a mark for that horse in that moment. Um, it's a process. It has to be all relative to the training scale. And there are so many things to consider. There are so many variables and you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to make that decision in a split second with a comment and move on. And especially if you've, if you've got the PR passage tour, you've got oh, like five so many movements in yeah. of about 30 seconds yeah. and it's like, think quick. And it's almost, it, and if something goes wrong, you've in the got to think that, quick. And then the poor scribe has to write dear. real quick. I love watching my, I, I love like checking like, my Apple watch after a test. This. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, what's my heart rate doing? It's probably through the roof. <laughs> Am I stressed? Yes. Oh, that was intense. And it's like, did I get the right mark? Or did I see the right thing in the right minute? Um, you know, you've got to be really confident and you've got to be focused. And, yeah, it's it's a lot. So I do wonder at how oh. AI would work. I wonder how computers would kind of, you know, how they could be included to assist There's with so the scoring. There's so many variables, yeah. Oh, wow. That would be hard. Yeah. yeah. I'll leave that to someone else, I think. <laughs> well, hats off to you and thank you anyway for putting your hand up to become a judge because, as you said, it's a thankful, thankless task sometimes. Um, Dude, it's and... so good for your writing, though. Like, it's yeah. so good for your writing, just keeping things in mind where you're like, oh, that's right. If ever you get lost, you just refer to what you know and what you've learned and, yeah, it's it's good. It's, it's very good for your writing, I think. <laughs> well, I'm, yes, as I said, I'm very thankful for anyone who does it because we definitely need more. And as you said, if you've written FEI, there is a shortcut to be upgraded a little bit quicker that most people mm -hmm. should look into. So that's a fantastic initiative by EA. <laughs> time to wrap it up I've had such a great chat with you and I'm you know I think everyone has had you know a fantastic insight into how you've de developed from a young rider looking at young horses to you know breeding your own horses and seeing you know an accident or a setback you know being turning that into a positive and turning it into something that you could do now that you may not have had the chance to do if you hadn't have had that event occur so thank you very much for coming on the writer's circle ali thanks so much for having me ali thank you again for being a part of the writer's circle podcast we wish you continued success in your equestrian journey and we hope to have you back in the future to share more of your expertise and that's a wrap for today's episode of the Riders Circle podcast. Thank you all for tuning in and a special thank you to our very first podcast guest, Ali O'Neill.